I think we've all made peace with this is where innovation comes from. This is where profitability is going to come from for a lot of companies. And our products have to be able to support that. Governance used to get in the way. It can't do that anymore. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington. Today, I'm joined by Adam Wood, Director of Data Governance and Data Quality at MasterCard. Of course, before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. I had the pleasure of meeting Adam at a recent event I hosted with Cloudera, a Data Leaders Roundtable back in February. And it is a pleasure to welcome him to the show to talk a little bit about data governance for machine learning. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Sam. It's good to see you again. It's great to see you and looking forward to digging into our chat. Of course, I'd love to have you introduce yourself to our audience and share a bit about how you came to work in data. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people don't know this. By education, I've got a doctorate in biochemistry. Mm. And through several twists and turns of career, moved into IT at Monsanto and didn't want to do anything else. So I've spent roughly 12 years, the last 12 years of my career in the data governance and data strategy space. And that has spanned Monsanto, healthcare companies, the financial industry, and picked up a lot of knowledge, how data science has grown, how governance has been applied within those different industries, how data is treated within those different industries and the different sensitive information and regulations that get applied across the board. So with my current job, I've tried to bring all of that industry knowledge forward and see how I can help MasterCard progress in their their initiatives. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, let's maybe start by talking about the various use cases for the data and data platforms that you're working with at MasterCard, both machine learning and beyond. How's data being used there? Yeah, so so MasterCard, obviously, being a global company, we bring in a lot of information. And you can guess what that information is related to. (laughs) We process a lot of credit card information for banks and different merchants globally. The governance needs there have really grown with the volume of data that we process. And even the growth of data science as a function has driven more of the need for governance across the board. So as data privacy regulations have grown, As the volume of information has grown, the need for us to regulate and do more with it from a governance standpoint has definitely grown as well. The downside is governance as a classical initiative tended to get in the way. Sure. And so our data needs are for more open use of the information and putting guardrails on the information rather than being this blocker to data access and use. So the majority of what we work on right now are ways to automatically detect and catalog sensitive information across the company and across the borders, the different countries that we do business in, and to make sure every single security and privacy regulation is being followed down to the the letter. And doing so, what we've been able to do is bring solutions forward that enable the data science community to understand where information lives what it means, how to access it, and how to do so responsibly using privacy privacy management and consent management to make sure anything that we're using the information for is always in line with regulations that we're facing up to. Now, governance used to be very inflexible. 
The regulations are changing more and more. New ones are being added to the table all the time. And the data science world has become incredibly flexible and needs to be moving fast. So everything that we do from a data science standpoint at MasterCard and actually at several other companies has had to flex with cloud adoption, with machine learning and AI, the scale of data that's needed, the performance needs that are available. And I would tell you the number one thing that we're focused on right now is heavy reuse, helping people understand that there is information out there that other data science teams have curated and put together. And the quality rules that have been applied don't have to be bespoke. They can be shared across teams. So helping connect data science teams through our governance platforms and helping them move faster through shared components and reuse has been one of the the largest undertakings that we brought forward. Mm. And when we think about governance, well, you mentioned one of the things that was often thought about is like this barrier that, you know, maybe internal bureaucracy that you have to overcome to use your data. But more broadly, yeah, I guess you can kind of think of it as there being like carrots and sticks in terms of why you might invest in data governance and, and build out those kinds of processes. And before we started recording, you shared an example of a, <laughs> a significant stick that was passed down by a regulatory body. Can you talk a little bit about this example that you shared and what it means for folks that are using data on a global scale? Yeah, absolutely. So the stick that I was referring to has to do with GDPR and uh, the newest regulations around SHREMS. So Amazon was slapped with an $898 million fine. Wow. And it was because they were using data for some of their data science projects that users had consented to them collecting, but they had not consented to the way it was being used. Mm. And so privacy regulations have gone well beyond, I need to know where my data is, how you're tracking it, and making sure it's encrypted and that you're being responsible as you store it. Now it's, if you're going to take my information, you can only use it in the way that I stated you could. Mm -hmm. And so consent management alongside the information for people to consume has to be available. People have to have the understanding that this information that we've collected in this particular place can only be used for these purposes. And that's where a lot of governance tooling has moved to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, regulations and the growth of data science have driven a lot of the governance discipline. You're right. It used to be a massive blocker. It used to be very prohibitive. Now it's become much more agile, a lot more automated and light touch so that we are bringing as many tools forward as possible to track metadata, policies, consent, and map that side by side with the information on what the data is and where it's stored. So that as any data science consumer comes forward and wants to use it, they know the guardrails that they have to follow. Yeah. Yeah, I was very surprised to hear about this Amazon fine. For many years, we've kind of operated in this gray area where, you know, there are all kinds of open questions with regard to what happens if you take data and incorporate it into a model. Privacy wasn't really, it was indeterminate. There were legal and IP issues that were kind of indeterminate. Sounds like some of these things are getting clearer. And at least in the case that you mentioned, it's fallen back on if explicit consent wasn't given for that use, then it can't be used there. And I think, you know, I wonder how many organizations are operating with that kind of constraint in place. It has gotten clearer, 
but it's also gotten more difficult to manage mm. because the variety of data that people are bringing in, it gets scattered very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that you have governance processes, highly automated and scalable processes to make sure that consent and privacy standards are being adhered to, making sure that data is encrypted at rest and the different types of things that regulators are asking for. That's all built into these data cataloging tools, which have taken huge indicators from the data science community as a whole. So the management of privacy and consent has been incredibly difficult to start because the traditional BI, if I go back 10 years, there was no such thing as serving up raw information to an end consumer, mm-hmm. right? It was all going through something that had already been curated, something that had already been deemed safe, and it was only exposed through a report, for example. Exactly. It was only exposed through a handful of BI tools, or there was an army of data architects and, and engineers that handled a handful of databases. So they knew what all the information represented and how to be careful with it. So now data science needs access to the raw. Mm-hmm. Now, they don't need the curated layer because they want to be able to build features off of the raw information and they want to be exposed to all of the variables there to be able to create a true model of the raw information they'll encounter instead of trying to build an AI model on top of a business intelligence layer. Yeah. It's kind of a no-brainer. So, but looking at rather than going through these highly curated views where consent and policy assignment and everything else would be so much easier, the difficulty is, has become going to all of the underlying product databases and operational databases and figuring out how to merge consent and privacy with the underlying data stores. And I'll keep this entire conversation, I'll keep coming back to data catalogs that are really providing that opportunity. And even you'll see some of the services being stood up in the public cloud providers right now that are helping facilitate this. And Amazon just published, I want to say it was a month and a half to two months ago, that they've released crawlers for their cloud environments to help help identify sensitive and personal information in all of their cloud environments that can also be fed into their data catalog. So even the public cloud providers are starting to release these capabilities that enable governance, but do it in a very scalable and automated way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that came up that you know, is just a, a level of complexity that never really occurred to me. This was something we discussed at the Data Leaders Roundtable was have kind of introduced this issue of governance and the requirement to track user consent. But then when you talk about it at kind of a global scale, that global scale implies not just you know, more, more records, more access, um, but also this requirement to federate in a sense, because you have, it's not just one regulatory regime. You have all these different regulatory regimes. You've got uh, requirements that data, you know, stay local to a particular locale. Of course, you can articulate this better than me. Kind of walk through some of the complexity that you run into there. Yeah. So some of the newest standards that have come out of India, China, Germany, South Africa, it's this concept of nationalism. Mm -hmm. And each one of these countries brings forth a different set of rules to where where data is created. And if it carries certain attributes, it can't leave that country. And when you look at a lot of global companies, their information is processed centrally. Data warehouses are built centrally. And so 
a lot of AI models and a lot of machine learning models are grabbing training sets centrally. But what happens now when you can't centralize that information and everything has to be federated? Mm -hmm. I know this has certainly, certainly impacted governance. On the data science side as well, I think a lot of companies are struggling with how to train locally and then build the model centrally. But I can tell you one of the things that's another area of governance that's gaining a lot of momentum and has been for the last three to four years is the concept of data lineage, which helps us understand where all of the same data sets are occurring from, even in a federated model, and how they can be matched and merged and flow together. This is incredibly beneficial, too, as we're exchanging information across different boundaries between different countries to make sure that we stay in compliance with regulations. But at the same time, data scientists, as long as I've known any mature data scientists initiatives, they want to know where their information is sourced from, how it was constructed, and now, is there anything that's limiting its use regionally or consent or privacy related. The nationalism is bringing in a new area of complexity where you can only use information for a certain location in that location. And so data lineage is really helping us uncover exactly where that information is being sourced from so that data scientists can make sure that they're only using it for a specific purpose in that region now. So it's given us a different layer of granularity to try and protect people from using information in a way it wasn't intended to, or moving outside of the boundaries of a country with it. Mm -hmm. Now, in a kind of fast-moving data science world in which you've got folks building all kinds of different pipelines and doing different kinds of transformations, pulling this information into models, sometimes hierarchical models, how are folks keeping track of lineage? Yeah, so, so some of the newest initiatives that I've been part of There's some brilliant people in the data science community of MasterCard that really have a good handle on this. But as we're building feature stores, as new feature sets are being created, we can build in the metadata around how. How was each feature constructed? What types of cleansing logic was used? And all of that information is going to be published back to our data catalog so that the data science community not only understands that these feature sets are out there and available for use, They understand how they were built. And so the intention here, you're right, data science is moving faster and faster. One of the things that we want to do to enable people is make sure that they have a shared set of components to use rather than 30 or 40 people going after the exact same data set and taking the time to create their own feature set from it. We can use data lineage. We can use the metadata that's been gathered around other curated feature sets that have been built and combine that with the information from the feature store to help people locate that information and move towards it and start using it very quickly. So the agility of data science, you know, they're going to keep coming up with new use cases, but as people build new feature sets, we want to make sure that that's immediately understood and available for other people to consume. Because chances are, if there's some new wonderful initiative, a new data science program coming forward, a lot of people are going to be going after the same data. And whoever reaches the end goal first and builds something that's really valuable, we want other people to start consuming that right away. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the, with regard to the the feature store and metadata management in particular, 
talk a little bit more about how you've attacked that problem, what you've built, and kind of where that's going. Sure. So this all started off of the ability to just curate data. Okay. Not even moving towards a feature set yet. It was just how do we build the data sets from the raw information? How do we aggregate from multiple databases or denormalize something from multiple data warehouse sources Mm -hmm. to build something that we could use to train a particular model? Okay. And so all of our metadata management, our data catalog was already consuming that information, meaning we had tracked every single database and every table and every column and every shred of business metadata that we could get for that information. So that as data scientists were starting to build curated data sets, they understood what they were bringing in. And then as they built their data sets, we've got some very, very incredible partners that are publishing back metadata for what they've done to construct these sets. So we now know that in these tables, this is information that was sourced from X, Y, and Z. Hmm. We're intending to use it for these additional problems. It's a training set for this set of models. The discipline that I would love to see going forward is that within any sort of data science platform, they make sure to relate back to how that particular feature set was constructed to make sure all of these components are fully understood. We do see gaps here and there. And so I look at it as, let's say I cooked a wonderful dinner and I didn't write down any of the recipe. And now I've got to go do it again. I've got to start from scratch. We don't want people to have to do that. So what we do with the the feature store is very similar to that. So every set that's being created, it's how is this feature normalized? You know, how is it cleansed? How was any sort of backfills done to make sure that this was a complete feature set for someone to be able to consume and use? And for what purposes were people consuming it? So again, if I'm working under a particular set of consent assumptions and I'm able to see other data sets or feature sets that were built from that same set of assumptions and that same consent, I'm off to the races. Mm -hmm. I don't have to spend any time trying to construct it myself. I may have some tweaks that I want to make to it, but I've got a huge leg up. Mm-hmm. Historically, when we've talked about feature stores, there's you know one aspect of the feature store is kind of making the the features available and kind of ensuring consistency of features and, and things like that. And another aspect of it is more kind of the store part of this, um, not as in storage, but as in a place that you you know a marketplace almost, or really focusing on feature reuse and enabling teams to avoid kind of reinventing the the wheel. And there's been this historical uh, kind of, I guess it depends a lot on the the organization. Sometimes you find folks push back on that because they don't want to create something that they need for their project and then have to own and support it, have it be used in ways that it wasn't intended. You mentioned reuse earlier. I'm, I'd love for you to share a bit about how you see reuse playing out in an org as as big as MasterCard. Yeah, so so I can tell you some, some other companies and the way they've addressed it and some of the things that we're thinking about as well. Mm-hmm. If you look at some of the companies that have really published a lot of their governance process and their data catalogs, Lyft, Uber, Spotify, they have all gone and built their own. Yeah. And they've built their own with data science in mind. So how do you get to reuse? Whenever you search for particular information, it actually brings back sample queries that have been run. 
the people that, that have been most frequently accessing that information, samples of the data sets. So it drives reuse by helping you build a community of people that are after the exact same information. The way we've approached it is we work with the data science community who is the, the larger teams that are building these data sets, bring them into our data catalog, and then there's a, a way to certify them as top quality assets. And so we also add additional metadata so that any data science coming in can look for, these are the certified assets that are available for the data science community, see them immediately, and then be able to access them. We do also take some approaches running analytics on our data science environments to look at query behaviors. Very similar to what these other companies were doing, but looking at behaviors of individual users within individual teams to see what data they're going after. And can we connect that to a data set that's already been curated and is available to use? And then we can actually drive those users towards those curated feature sets. Right now, we can't guarantee reuse, but we can do, we can strongly promote reusable feature sets that are out there. And by including the logic that was used to build them, we make sure that we can iterate on top of those and continue to build new ones from a base component rather than trying to, like I said, reinvent the wheel every single time. Mm -hmm. One of the broader contexts of ensuring responsible use of machine learning in the broader context of ensuring the responsible use of machine learning and dealing with issues like bias, the ideas of like data cards and data sheets for data sets have been proposed and are increasingly popular. Are you doing anything like that to kind of profile the data and the the way it's been sourced and the, the various biases so that folks that are trying to use it have more visibility into that? So I would say I'm not as familiar with any bias that's gone into the data. We do source a lot of external information, as many companies do. Mm -hmm. And we also have several third-party acquisitions that we've made. So whenever we don't have the information or the capability internally, MasterCard's been making a lot of acquisitions in the open banking space, in fraud detection, in identity management. And so we do, in every single one of those instances, when we start looking at the information that those companies bring forward, we're always thinking about new analytics that can be built. And the first issue that's always tackled is what is underrepresented? What do they have that's new to us? What do we have that's probably new to them? And are there any gaps remaining? Is there anything, if we're going to build a comprehensive model over this information, now, what type of information do we need to make to or bring in so that the, the end result is not skewed? Trying to eliminate as much bias as possible because a lot of these smaller acquisitions, they cater to one class of user or one class of customer. So when we're bringing in acquisitions, of course, there's going to be some level of bias. But MasterCard has the advantage of being a very large global company with an absolutely massive customer base. And so those types of evaluations help us understand bias pretty quickly. Now, in terms of data profiling, this is also a space that we're spending considerable efforts in and considerable time in going into um, really understanding across the board value distributions. What is the use of the information? Is it reference data? 
Is it sensitive information? And we're doing all of this to make sure that we manage encryption. We're making sure that we manage lineage and, and the, the flow of sensitive information appropriately. And it's also tied to consent management. I would say that particular information, though, we're still working on ways to really tie it to the data science community and make it usable. I think the first foray into that is really going to be around the consent and privacy management, but then figuring out ways to make that give additional value to data science teams from our data profiling results is something we're exploring right now. Mm -hmm. How does data quality play into all of this? Yeah, so it's always been a really special relationship between data quality and data science, mostly because most of the data science teams that I've worked with, mm -hmm. the first words out of their mouth are, don't touch the data. <laughs> don't try to sanitize anything before it hits my hands because I want to have influence over the way that it's cleansed. Yeah. So some of the things that we really try to do, we know when there is something that's that's very error prone. For instance, credit card numbers that come in with special characters and letters in them, okay? There might be something in that transaction that is valuable to a data science team, <laughs> but chances are it's gonna have other errors in it and we don't want people to start to use that type of information. So data quality is really used more from a product development standpoint. Is this data, is it recommended that this data is fit for use or fit for purpose? But in terms of data quality for data science, a lot of those measures are actually coming from the data science teams themselves, rather than these, these dedicated data quality organizations that exist in almost every enterprise organization right now. Mm -hmm. So data quality for data science has really taken on a life of its own. It's become a very interesting space in terms of cleansing and feature creation. And so the the big level of encouragement that I give to these data science groups is great. The tools that we have for regular operational data quality, they track what we're running. We know exactly what we're running it against. If you're building a brand new pipeline, you have to do the same thing. And you also, uh, my big recommendation is take the data quality measures and cleansing measures that you're building and make them some form of reusable component. If you're going through the effort of doing it, almost like a feature store, there needs to be some form of a feature cleansing store. Hmm. And that way, when you're providing metadata around how you've created everything, you can cleanly reference the processes that you used to get there, or at least some logic around what's been done from your personal data quality standpoint to let other people understand how things were created. But data quality is, is an interesting space in data science. It's taking shape a lot more than it was. You know, it was, it was sort of go at it alone, cleanse the information however you see fit. And, you know, the normal data quality measures that organizations would run, don't touch my data, stay out of it, let me do what I need to do. Those two are going to have to meet in the middle somewhere. I think we're on the way to doing that just because the, the, level of effort it takes to keep reinventing feature sets and features and everyone applying the same logic over and over with no way to reference it centrally. I think that's about to change very soon. Mm -hmm. When we spoke earlier, you also referenced data domain discovery. How does that play into all of this? Yeah. So data domain discovery is a term that's used specifically by Informatica. Okay. Informatica's governance suite. 
But the domain discovery relates down to what is the logic that I can run as part of data profiling that lets me understand the type of information that's in each particular column or what each particular key in a document represents. And so what companies are starting to do with that information is as you have a series of what are just loosely called tags or data domains or some form of label for each document, each table, each column, each key, you can build additional logic on top of that to figure out what governance policies you have to assign. And so data domains are another one of these ways that can be fully automated, that can be fully scalable, and is, is one of the newer governance processes that's really taken hold. It's no, there is no manual intervention in these processes. It's something to where you can scale across, you know, as many databases, hybrid cloud environment, on-premise, fully cloud environment, and come away with your data sets being labeled with what they contain. And that type of logic can immediately help you understand if there are different types of security needs, if there are different types of policy and privacy implications. So is the general idea here that we've got some new database, maybe it comes in for being an acquisition or a third-party source, and it hasn't been previously curated, and this data domain discovery tools can identify columns that represent PII, like addresses or phone numbers, names? Yeah, that's exactly the point. So the scale of information that every company is bringing in has absolutely gotten massive, logarithmic growth. And not only that, data brokers have started to become, I mean, those are in the news all the time, people selling information, whether that's appreciated or not. A lot of companies are using information that they didn't generate, Mm -hmm. that someone else did, and now they have to take ownership of it. And so what data domain discovery or data tagging does is it looks at that information and tries to determine from any patterns in it, is it an email address, phone number, IP address, anything that could be used to reverse engineer your identity or the identity of your financial information. So obviously fraud has become a very, very big deal in recent years. The sophistication of identity theft and people that have, are stealing credit cards and making transactions in your name. Matter of fact, two years ago, someone filed my IRS tax return in my name. So people are getting really creative. And so making sure that we understand all information that we're taking in and processing, uh, making sure that any sensitive information around a customer or a bank or um, any sort of financial transaction is well understood and protected This is where the entire governance industry is headed. So these are definitely initiatives that we've taken on. And it also helps us in terms of R&D or POC methods to know which information needs to be anonymized, encrypted. We apply that same thing to our operations, making sure that we understand which information needs to be encrypted or even hashed to make sure it's secured at all times. And so this is akin to data profiling. It's an additional step that results in labeling of each individual element in a database, but that makes sure in an automated way across the board globally, we have the right controls in place to understand what our data represents and to make sure our customers stay safe. So we've talked a lot about the tooling around data management, data catalog, even feature stores. 
a lot of organizations are also investing in building out platforms for the the data science parts of the workflow. Is that something that MasterCard is doing as well? Yeah, absolutely. So within our data warehousing environments, we're big users of Cloudera. We have roughly a 20 petabyte Hadoop environment right now. Very large, contains a ton of information. And one of the native components there is the data science workbench. And so along with that, the majority of our data science workflows, the data pools, a lot of the aggregations, a lot of the the testing file and, and training file storage is all happening within that singular platform. That's also where a lot of our governance activities have focused to understand we're using Cloudera Manager to be able to pull logs, how people are accessing the information, how they're interrogating the information, and being able to build different types of analytics to help connect different members of our user community. So it's been a decentralized platform Mm -hmm. for data science at MasterCard so far. And we're exploring other ones as well, but Hadoop and Cloudera have played a very large part for us. And even within the newest releases, Apache Atlas as a data catalog component of the Cloudera platform has come forward. And we're looking forward to building out some additional integrations with that to strengthen our, our global governance footprint. Got it. And historically, one of their pitches for the data science workbench is kind of this integration between the governance capability and their like historical data management tooling and the data science workflows. And now, you know, even emphasizing the the ability to deploy on different cloud environments, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. So even some of the, the newer things that we've done within data cataloging, and this is happening everywhere. It's not a standalone platform. Mm -hmm. We're building a bunch of API services that can be accessed and called directly from within Data Science Workbench to be able to both pull out metadata and push back metadata. So I was referencing how to share how you've built different feature sets or different training sets. We want people to be able to do that natively from within the platform that they're working in so they can search our catalog natively from within Data Science Workbench. And then turn around and at the end of the day, when they've built their data set, publish that metadata back in Okay. so that we get a record of not only how it was built, but also where it's stored now so that other people can have access to it. Got it. So, Adam, a lot of what we've talked about thus far has been from your perspective as the, the governance and data management person informed by the work you've done with data scientists. Is there a set of things that you wish data scientists knew about? the space beyond what we've talked about or, or things that you wish that they would do that would make them more effective in, in thinking about and working with governance? Absolutely. So I mentioned I've been in this space for 10 to 12 years, right? Nobody cared about governance when I started. <laughs> it was pure overhead. Nobody wanted to do it. But then data science became a discipline. And it had to get more flexible. And now what you'll find is a lot of these governance platforms take their opportunities from data science. Mm. I think we've all made peace with this is where innovation comes from. This is where profitability is going to come from for a lot of companies. Mm -hmm. And our products have to be able to support that. Governance used to get in the way. It can't do that anymore. When you're chopping at the revenue stream of your company, you've got to make changes. So my biggest advice to data scientists, first and foremost, get acquainted with what the platform does. Get acquainted with how to contribute information to and consume information from a data catalog, because I guarantee you your company has one. 
a lot of people just don't know of its existence in most cases. Um, beyond that, figure out how you become a contributor. And I don't just mean a contributor to the data catalog or your governance program. What I mean is if you're building feature sets, figure out what metadata you can do to improve the work of everyone else around you. If you're building data quality logic, if you're building cleansing logic, if you're building up feature sets, make sure that you're tracking how that information was constructed and that you're putting it into a central repository so that people can access it at a later date. When you do that, when it hits that central repository, that's where data tagging and data profiling is happening. So you get the added benefit of letting us do the automated processes to protect your information for you. We can now let you and everybody else know if there's sensitive information in it. Is it a data set that's open for use and can be used by anybody internally? Now, a lot of the processes that we run are enablers. We try incredibly hard not to get in the way anymore. What we want to do is make sure data science gets served the information that they need to be more effective. And like you were talking about earlier, we are here to promote reuse and direct people to the right information and how to use it responsibly. And so the, the final thing that I'll say is I want every data scientist to focus on reuse, hmm. heavy reuse. I mean, feature stores came about because the industry was saying we can't keep going at this alone. Mm -hmm. Well, the data catalog is helping you not have to. But in order to do that, you have to focus on the ways that you're constructing data sets and the way that you're tracking that information. You can contain some of that in your feature store. I'd ask from a governance standpoint that you push the rest of that metadata into the data catalog so that privacy, compliance, cybersecurity, everyone else has the privilege to see your work and make sure that it's protected for you. We're not here to cause roadblocks. <laughs> We're here to be an uplift and help you get to your end goal faster. But we want to make sure that we have you set for success through making sure you're adhering to privacy, consent, all these other risks that are out there so that you can move very quickly in a de-risked environment. Awesome. Well, Adam, thanks so much for joining us and sharing a bit about your experience uh, with data governance. Uh, it's great to chat once again. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Adam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.